Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. This show has been pre-recorded on Thursday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, 2020, to be aired live on Monday, December 28th, 2020, at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Live in Austin, Texas on KOOP 91.7 FM and streaming live at coop.org. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 36th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, are you ready to go to war? Pedro Gatos in Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspective to U.S. foreign policy impacts around the world since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we knew the truth or if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is too often we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. The focus of tonight's show is to bring light into darkness around what the U.S. public should know about the cost of war. Over the last couple of shows, we have, among other foci, examined the developing cabinet of President-elect Joe Biden and the history of Joe Biden and those cabinet members he has already selected or is reportedly considering. The disturbing finding is that it all points to a bellicose foreign policy similar to President Obama's administration and his predecessor, President George W. Bush and an excess to even Donald Trump's foreign policy and its broken promises of de-escalating our military forces abroad. Tonight's show shifts its focus from personalities to objective outcomes in past history of U.S. militarism, and we are delighted to have a great American authority on this subject as our guest tonight, author and professor David Vine. We are excited to present his articulate and compassionate dialogue we had with our guest on Christmas Eve. And we rebroadcast for the first time tonight, December 28, 2020, on your premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP, Austin, Texas, that interview and dialogue. Stay tuned and enjoy. Okay, welcome alternative news listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. 
This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, streaming live at koop.org. Today, actually tonight, believe it or not, is Christmas Eve 2020, the 24th. It's a Thursday, and we are blessed to have with us the author and professor, David Vine. We'll properly introduce him in just a second. This show will be rebroadcast live on Monday, December the 28th, 2020, from 6 to 7 p.m., right here in Austin, Texas. First, David, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hey, Joe, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Well, it is a great honor to have you on the show. The focus of the show really is foreign policy and, and the impact that we as a nation have on the world around us. I have been following your work for some time. You are a professor of anthropology over at American University in Washington, D.C. You're the author of two important books, one, Base Nation, How the United States Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. It was published in 2015. And your other book that was recently published, The United States of War, A Global History of Endless American Conflict from Columbus to the Islamic State, published in 2020. David's also a board member of Brown University's Costs of War Project, which I particularly would like to definitely broach that subject tonight, the impacts on uh, civilian populations in the countries that are involved in the foreign interventions that we are part of or, or unilaterally are promoting and those types of things. But first, if I could just start off, I, wa- I first came across your work actually from uh, Anne Wright, Colonel Ann Wright, and she wrote an article back in 2015 citing what I thought was hugely important, just the quantifying, the snapshot of exactly what the United States empire, if you will, I call it an empire, just based on these military installations alone. And she was citing your work. She was uh, indicating back in this 2015 speech, I think she was actually I'm trying to remember where she was. She might have been in the Philippines giving a a speech, uh, but that's not as important as the content of her words. So let me kind of turn to that. She was citing your work. She said, today, the United States has over 800 U.S. military installations around the world. She went on to indicate that not only that, but the United States has 95% of the world's foreign bases. And again, I'm, I'm referencing a point in time that was on December 19th, 2015 in her presentation challenging U.S. overseas military bases by Anne Wright. The 95% of the world's bases, she also indicated that there was a decline in the number of bases since the demise of the Soviet Union in 1989, but still it left us with some 95% of the world's foreign bases. Other countries had a combined total of about 30 bases. Great Britain had seven bases, France five bases, Russia has eight military bases in the former Soviet republics, and one in Syria. Again, this is in 2015. So maybe we could start there, David, if you don't mind. You know, we are told, and we are just bombarded by this whole issue that Russia is the aggressor everywhere we turn. Russia is the aggressor. But according to this profile, they have very few bases that are really even outside of the former Soviet Union. And comparatively speaking, we have some seven or 800. Can you bring us up to date on what that profile looks like today? Sure. Yeah, that has been a subject of my work since really since 
summer of 2001 when I became interested in one military base in particular. It actually took me to Austin, uh, the base in the middle of the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia. Very few people know about, but it became the subject of my my first work and then opened my eyes to the, the really the world of, of U.S. military bases that exist outside the United States. Started asking questions like, wait, why does the United States have a military base? in the Indian Ocean and began studying the whole the whole collection that now um, number that the numbers are, are are similar to what Anne Wright cited. There are now about eight hundred US military bases outside the fifty states and Washington DC in around eighty countries and colonies, some US colonies and, and other countries' colonies. And the numbers are, are very hard actually even the Pentagon doesn't know the true total. Uh, they put together uh, a list more or less every year. They're supposed to put it together every year. But it, it always omits well-known bases as well as secretive bases, the foreign bases belonging to other countries like Russia and France. Britain are also sometimes hard to track. But the same situation basically exists as it did in 2015. The United States has the vast majority of the world's foreign military bases probably somewhere between 80 and 95% of the mm-hmm. world's foreign bases. Britain has, there's a new report showing Britain has more than we might have thought. Russia definitely has more uh, primarily in Syria, although it seems to be adding bases in, in Africa as well. China has a single foreign military base in Djibouti, a country that actually hosts foreign military bases belonging to I think, at least seven countries. China has about four or five, if you include the bases, it's built on human-made islands in the South China Sea, but Mm -hmm. four or five compared to the roughly 800 bases abroad that the United States maintains and has maintained, especially since World War II, when the U.S. military built the world's largest collection of of bases in in world history. Uh, And since World War II, the number has fluctuated going up during the wars in in Korea and Vietnam, Southeast Asia, and then going up again beginning in in the 1980s when a large buildup of bases in the Middle East was built by both Presidents Carter and Reagan. Uh, That collection of bases in the Middle East then made it all too easy, in my mind, Mm -hmm. to go to war against Iraq first in 1991 and then again in in both Afghanistan and Iraq following the attacks of 9-11. And during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the total number of U.S. bases abroad was even larger. In Afghanistan and Iraq alone, the the total uh, was over a thousand. So the, the the grand total was was more than two thousand outside the fifty states in D.C., but the the number of eight hundred today is is still likely the largest collection of foreign bases in world history. So, so how do you distinguish, or do you distinguish, between a military base and a special operations capacity? I know under President Obama there was a huge increase in special operations capacities as well. Can you describe, is there a big difference or when you're talking about 800 bases, are you including all the exit points from which special operations can be launched? 
Yeah, great question. The definition of a military base is very difficult to determine, and different people have different definitions. So I, uh, the, my calculation of, of 800 uh, is based on the, the Pentagon's annual count of base sites that people can find online. They can also find my spreadsheet on my, my website, mm-hmm. uh, basenation.us. It's basenation.us. But I begin with the Pentagon's list of what they call base sites, and then I uh, have added well-known bases and bases that can be well-documented by authoritative news sources, among other among other sources. But uh, the, the the definition includes really it, it spans a, a spectrum from massive city-sized bases that one sees in places like South Korea and Germany, Japan, Italy, bases that don't look too dissimilar from from ones that that people are surely familiar with in Texas, bases like Fort Hood, Mm -hmm. which uh, I'm sure almost everyone knows is one of the largest military bases in the world. Meanwhile, there are similarly large or almost as large bases in U.S. bases in places like South Korea and Germany and Japan. So the spectrum runs from those city-sized bases with tens of thousands of troops and family members, hospitals, yoga studios, restaurants, fast food, bowling, et cetera, et cetera, to much smaller bases that that now are often referred to as lily pad bases. They're bases that have just a, a few hundred troops on them, typically. Often they are indeed special forces troops, special operators, no families, none of, or very few amenities compared to the, the large bases. Um, and and everything in between. I don't count as a base. Uh, you know, if some special forces troops are operating on a temporary basis, for example, uh, for a short period of time from a foreign military base, that I wouldn't count as a, a U.S. base. But uh, not infrequently, these lily pad bases are actually de facto permanent installations located on and within foreign military bases. So the uh, base belonging to the military of the Philippines, for example, or not long ago in in Colombia, would on its premises have a a U.S. installation that that was uh, de facto a a permanent base, and that, that would make it on my list. Yeah, just like the militarization of the world is like, I can remember I kind of cut my teeth on social theory and stuff back in the uh, 70s and 80s in the Central American period of time there where we had all of these military bases supporting these horrific military dictatorships in Honduras and El Salvador and of course Nicaragua before the Sandinistas came to power or whatever but but the point of all that was we were building all sorts of military bases for our, for ourselves and then we would kind of bequest them to the military governments as we left and so they would use and continue to use these these military sites there was a piece that i read some time ago too that i wanted you to maybe speak to just a little bit but it's by nick terse it was in the war times back back in 2014 the spring and it was called america's secret war in 134 countries and he was really his focus was more on some of these special operation forces. So he said, formally established in 1987, the Special Operations Command, SOCOM, in the waning days of the Bush administration, special operations were deployed in about 60 countries. By 2010, a number swelled. In 2011, according to Special Operations spokesperson Colonel Tim Nye, he told TomDispatch.com that the total would reach 120 in 2013, elite U.S. forces were deployed in 134 countries, which at that time was 70 percent 
of the world's uh, nations. And that was according to SOCOM Major Matthew Robert Buckholt. And so this 123% increase during the Obama years is just one form of overseas power projection, according to the author here, Nick Terse, conducted largely in the shadows of America's most elite troops. So uh, that's consistent with what you're saying. I mean, are, are we in that many countries today? When you add the special operations type of component, I guess what you're saying is it's really kind of hard to make those estimates, but does this seem like a number that's about the same, or would you have any speculation on that? Yeah, no, I, I think we don't need to speculate there. Nick Terse has continued to do fantastic reporting about special operations troops around, around the globe, and by his accounts, the Special Operations Command and its troops have, have continued to spread around the world. They're not always permanently located in other countries. So when he indicated in, in 2014 that they were operating in uh, 134 countries, he, I don't believe he, he was indicating that they were in 134 countries permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in many of those countries, there, there is, again, a sort of de facto permanent special operations presence, and they do that by, by doing what called the tooth-to-tail uh, deployments, where mm-hmm. one deployment of special operations forces will be in a country for six weeks to six months um, and then be replaced by another deployment. So it's not the same troops, but, but in, there's effectively a, a permanent presence of special operations forces in that country. And, and indeed, the, the growth of special operations troops around the world, U.S. <laughs> special operations forces, that is, is a very notable development in the last roughly decade since the Obama administration, and it began under the, the George W. Bush administration. And, and actually, ironically, it is something of a good sign, uh, and, and here's why. I mean, I, I, generally speaking, I don't think that the deployment of special operations forces is needed much of anywhere, but it's a good sign in this sense, a sign that the U.S. military and, and U.S. presidential administrations have had to work harder in recent years to do things they want to do, and not just harder, but more surreptitiously. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had to employ covert mechanisms, covert forces, uh, in the wake of the disaster of the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular. In the, in the wake of those wars and the disaster that unfolded, uh, the vast majority of, of people in the United States have turned against wars. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want to see boots on the ground. They've wanted to see an end to the endless wars for years now. So U.S. administrations have had to resort to more covert means of deploying military force around the world to effectively hide it from the American public, from the U.S. American public, and hide it from, from often from the, the publics in the countries where, where the U.S. troops are deployed. So it is, in, in a way, a sign of the growing opposition to war, which I, I think we need to keep our eye on, that, that despite many distressing signs when it comes to endless wars that, that seem to never end, there is really widespread opposition and growing opposition across the political spectrum against the long pattern of war that we've seen, especially since 2001. Very good. I just want to remind our listeners, we're visiting with the esteemed Professor David Vine, the author of two important books about the U.S. military reach and the history of war in our foreign policy. David's a professor at American University at the Department of Anthropology. So the other thing, just the last element, just as we're focusing on our offensive 
capabilities per se. So you're right. I mean, he wrote actually that these elite forces were deployed in 134 countries. He did not say that they were permanently stationed. So I guess when you take 134 countries, there may be 134 countries plus additional countries that have permanent bases. So we're probably in a lot more countries than 134 if you talk, if you include this deployed element of U.S. elite forces. I wanted to move on. Also, there are mobile military bases, or at least I call them that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a, in any way very well versed in this language and, and in the, the science of military stuff, but these aircraft carriers that we have, they are deployed throughout the world. How many do we have, and do you know relative to other countries, particularly our quote-unquote adversaries, that when we try to demonize Russia and stuff, I, I, I know they had recently sailed out a uh, an aircraft carrier a few years ago. Um, but can you give us that kind of snapshot from a, a Navy point of view, too, so we get the f- fuller picture of this capability that we're talking about? Sure. Yeah, the, the U.S. Navy has, I, I think you're exactly right to call them mobile military bases. Aircraft carriers are, are floating military bases, and the, the Navy actually has a few other types of, of floating bases on a smaller scale, but aircraft carriers, the super carriers, the, the United States has around, I think, 11 at this point. There are always a few in, well, sadly, there are a few in, in development and some get retired, um, but it's about 11 right now. China, Britain, France, Russia have carriers of different sizes, but, but nothing in, that compares to the, the collection the U.S. Navy maintains. And on a worldwide basis, these carriers are deployed to different parts of the globe. And again, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wanting to see everything from a positive side tonight, which I actually do think is really important, especially given that a lot of the subject of my, my work is, is rather depressing. But one of the reasons there are people across the political spectrum, in addition to the sort of general anti-war sentiment that I think we can see growing across the political spectrum, there are people across the political spectrum from libertarians and others on the right to people on the, on the left, the progressive left, who are and have been for a long time opposed to the collection of the hundreds of U.S. military bases encircling the globe and the hundreds of thousands of troops that occupy these bases outside the United States. And one of the reasons that some of those folks are opposed, I would say probably especially some folks on the right are opposed to this long-standing strategy that dates to World War II in the early days of the Cold War, is because technology today allows U.S. forces to deploy on a global basis with unprecedented speed. Um, and, and aircraft carriers are one of the w- ways and reasons that the U.S. military can deploy its forces on a global basis without maintaining formal bases on the land of other countries. Air Force's capabilities and ability to deploy bombers from, for example, Louisiana to virtually anywhere on the globe is another reason you don't need, if one ever needed, uh, military bases throughout Europe, for example, or East Asia. But So that that's just a rough overview of the situation when it comes to, to carriers. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm working with a group of people, um, academics, think tank analysts, activists, others, um, as part of what we call the Overseas-Based Realignment and Closure Coalition. This is a group of people across the political spectrum who have concerns about the number of of U.S. bases around the world and their impacts, and we're developing a, a set of proposals for base closures. And while many of us have deep concerns about the kind of policing the the globe 
attitude that, that comes with, you know, a large collection of super carriers. In terms of making proposals that it could be taken seriously by a, an even wider group of people across the political spectrum, aircraft carriers can be sort of in, seen as an intermediate proposal and, and alternative to maintaining the hundreds of bases abroad. Yeah, I remember, I think it was in Anne Wright's piece back in 2015 that we had mentioned earlier that they, the U.S. had 11 aircraft carriers back then, 2015. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Let me ask you, because you've mentioned there's so many things to talk to you about. We're never going to get all this done tonight, but let's get a good start. I think you rightly made a comment a little bit earlier that I think we should visit a little bit more, and that is the sensitivity of the American public for our men and women in harm's way. And so, you know, when we lose soldiers like we did in Vietnam, like we did in Afghanistan, and of course, now the numbers are coming out that are much higher when you include people from mental health perspectives that may have taken their own lives and et cetera, et cetera. But there was a big movement many, many years ago. In fact, I attribute it to, in the 1920s, Sandino, Augusto Sandino in Nicaragua was uh, leading a nationalist campaign there. Against U.S. occupation. We, you know, we had traditionally gone anywhere we wanted with our Marines and wiped out whatever was in the way and, and put into power whoever we felt was uh, appropriate to be there. And it was in that setting of the, of the late 20s that a bunch of Americans came back in body bags for the first time. And so subsequently, over the next couple of decades or so, uh, beginning really in the 40s, I think, we started developing different entities, like the School of Americans Watch is a good example, where we actually trained people from other countries to fight these wars on behalf of U.S. interests, in a sense. And so we would train them, and, and those surrogate forces, if you will, is a big, big change and even privatizing military operations and mercenary type of things from a foreign policy kind of perspective. So it, it, it's interesting that even individuals that want to become U.S. citizens, are you familiar with their options of potentially getting fast-tracked towards citizenship by joining the U.S. service? Is that something, is that is that an urban myth or is that something you're familiar with? Uh, I'm sorry, David. We need to take a quick break before asking you to respond to that question. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We are blessed to have with us the esteemed author and professor David Vine from American University. We'll be back right after this.